live on Facebook. Yay! Hi. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. And our special guest today, surprise, is Emily Hanford. So Emily, I'm so glad that you were on today. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time, especially on a weekend. So <laughs> They all kind of blend together. One day is a lot like the next. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I have to agree with that. Uh, you know, I've got a I have a full-time career as well and has absolutely nothing to do with education or dyslexia and an extremely athletic child. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, I don't know what day it is. I'm just going with the flow of whatever happening is happening right now in front of me. <laughs> One day at a time. Absolutely. So thank you again for joining us. I know we've had a lot of buzz about you being on today. Um, before we get to sold a story and what the words say and all of that. I want to ask you, do you have a dyslexic child or a child that struggles with learning disability? How did you come into, I mean, I'm going to call it this world, you know, there's, there's education reporting, but you've hit on the heart of what at least the dyslexia movement has been saying for a really long time about the science of reading, the science of literacy, all of that, and you, you've got a megaphone, thank God, and you're shining this big light on what parents have been screaming for, for forever. How did you fall into this space? It's a good question. And um, I think a lot of people do ask or assume or presume that I had a struggling reader, because I do know that that is what fuels a lot of people's passion for good reason about this. And it's what opens their eyes. And there are lots of people who are surprised by this. All of a sudden they have a struggling reader and it is their entree into learning about all of this. Um, it's a surprise to them. But I didn't have a struggling reader. In fact, I have two boys. They're now 19 and 22. One of them is currently downstairs playing the new Harry Potter video game, which he's been talking about for six months. I think my husband's about to download it himself. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. So um, anyway, and so I, uh, I think my kids learned to read relatively easily. They were both actually a little bit different. There was a little, some differences. And my older one, I actually, I sort of had some questions. Like I wasn't, I, I do actually kind of remember being like kind of confused, like how do you learn to read and having some questions about it. And, but it all, but it was fine. Like he, he kind of, he learned to read. I don't really know very much about how he was taught in school. My younger one really, I, I think my younger one is maybe an example of that very small percentage of kids who really figures out a lot of it on his own. I mean, I read a ton to my kids. I definitely like sounded out words and pointed to them. And I think there's a lot of incidental and even some sort of direct instruction they just got from me and my husband and at home. But by the time my younger one went off to school, he was really already reading. And I don't know how he learned to do that. And I think I learned to read pretty easily. And I think, I think I just come from, so we know a lot about how this is, can be often is uh, hereditary. Like there are some sort of genetic biological links markers of dys dyslexia. Right. And so I just think that I happen to come from a line of people who are on the spectrum. You know, we know it's all a spectrum who are on that spectrum for the most part of people who learn to read relatively easily. And, um, Although I have to say that since I got into this, I have learned about family members, in many cases, not direct bloodline family members, but a cousin's child and some others, and even some neighbors, you know, like people kind of come out of the woodwork a little bit when you start to focus on it and you realize like, oh, this is really all around me. And I didn't know, I, I didn't know. So I really came into all this, um, really knowing very little, knowing really nothing about dyslexia, probably thought it was like people read letters backwards or something. I mean, I don't even remember what I thought uh, dyslexia was. Uh, very little understanding of reading and how reading works and how people learn to read. And actually I should have known, I should have known more because I've been a reporter since 2008 and I didn't focus very much on early education. Um, but I really, and I, I sort of came into reporting kind of at the end of the reading war. So that wasn't ever anything I was really paying very close attention to as a reporter. Um, but I got into this a while ago now, it was really 2016, 2017. And I was actually interviewing people in college 
uh, and college instructors. And um, I was I was actually focusing on the really high incidence number of uh, college students who end up in these remedial reading and writing classes and remedial math classes at, at all colleges, particularly high percentage at community colleges. So I was visiting some community colleges in Connecticut and in Maryland where I live. And I was meeting these college students who were telling me about their struggles with reading. And I, I met this one woman in particular who was telling me that she had figured out about herself. She had never been sort of identified or I think um, gotten proper help in school, but she was a college student. She had figured out about herself that she was dyslexic. She did not come from a family with sort of the means financial and otherwise to kind of help her tackle that problem when she was younger. Um, and she told me about sort of how she got through school without really being able to read. I think this one was is pretty severe dyslexic, like really her reading ability mm -hmm. couldn't read much at all. And no one had really ever taught her. And I was just like, so fascinated by that to be telling you, I mean, like truly fascinated, like, wait, tell me a little bit more about that. How did she do that? She ended up getting through college, she says, without ever opening a book. And I was like, whoa, what? And wow. I think there's a lot of things we can, you know, there's a lot of things in there. Like, that's kind of amazing. You can get through college without reading a book that might say something about college. <laughs> it also says something about this woman's extraordinary abilities and coping strategies. And she sort of explained to me kind of like how she gets the gist of things, has a lot of people read to her, avoids written text. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, there's a lot you can learn and, and get information wise without being able to read. It's also a huge stumbling block, you know, but she, she's got a great memory. She memorized a lot of things. Anyway, long story shorter, I just got really interested in dyslexia and like, how did someone like, how did this little girl end up in college with, with a very, who's, she's very bright. She had a goal. She wanted to be a nurse and she needed a college degree to, to, you know, she need, needed a degree to get there. And I was like, how did this happen? Does it, is this happening to other people? And then lo and behold, I realized, oh my gosh, it's happening to a lot of people, like way more than I realized. I started meeting your world, the world of dyslexia parents, dyslexia moms, in many cases, not all, but in many. I started focusing on that at first, trying to understand something about why, because it's really the takeaway from the porting, like why so many kids with dyslexia aren't getting the help they need in school. Why is that? And it was, it was dyslexia moms who were helping to point me, not the only ones, towards the fact there's this big body of research on reading. And I started reading it. <laughs> I started talking to people and I was like, whoa, well, this is fascinating. And my intellectual curiosity was further piqued just by how just interesting it is. And I could turn my, my, I could turn around here and show you my bookcase full of books. And I happen to be a very good reader, a very fast reader. I feel very lucky in that way. And I just started reading hundreds, thousands of pages of research, talking to tons of people, doing what a reporter does, which is dig into something that in many cases they know very little about at first and just learning as much as they can about it. And then here I am, I guess it's about six years later, still on this topic because one thing led to another. Um, and led most recently to the Soul to Story podcast. So that's kind of my story. So I feel very lucky. And I, I, I this is one of the things that I, this is one of the big things I want everyone to take away mm -hmm. from this is that some people really struggle to learn how to read and it doesn't have to do with intelligence. Really, really, really smart people struggle and I meet them all the time. And some kids learn really easily. And there's a spectrum of ability here, like there is with so many things, but all people really need to learn the same things to become good readers. We're not born with brains that are wired to read. None of us are. And some of our brains just take to this thing in a, in a snap. Um, but it is really, it's a, and it's such a profound, important skill. And schools across the country are not teaching kids to read well enough. They're not teaching kids, all kids, the things they really need to know. And that is harming some children much more than others. And it is really harming dyslexic children, but there's a much wider swath, you know, dyslexia can have a cutoff, you know, it's, it, whether someone's dyslexic or not, depends on where you cut, you know, decide the demarcation line is with like with so many other things, but it's this big spectrum. And some kids have parents who can 
dedicate time and resources to making sure they get instruction, even if they're not getting it in school. But so many kids are from families who can't do that. Absolutely. And so this is like, at the end of the day, such an, like, it's an equity issue, you know, and, and if there is a skill that all kids need to learn, we need to make sure that our public schools teach kids that skill. Otherwise, it's not public education. <laughs> What's happening is that the most important skills are being privatized in many ways. Parents are doing it themselves and fixing the problem and we're privatizing away the problem. And we have test scores that show us that we've got a huge problem. And I don't even think those test scores are a reflection of how deep the problem is because some of it's being taken care of mm -hmm. by private money, but parents' checkbooks in many cases. Completely agree. And, you know, being able to have provided my own child what, what we've provided them, you know, and I don't hide the fact that in four years, we spent $65,000. That's a gift. That, that's something of extreme privilege. And even, even doing that, though, we couldn't afford to send him to one of the private dyslexia schools, you know, where that tuition cost may be 40,000 a year or more in some cases. And, you know, we're about to invest another $10,000. And again, that's something of extreme privilege. But one of the things that I liked within the uh, reporting that you've done is you pointed out, and I think it was, I know that it was in a segment with uh, Dr. Julie Washington, and it might've been from uh, what the words say. I'm, I'm yep, sorry. That's right. It was what the words say, which is from 2020. COVID yeah. year where you said, um, or in that dialogue with her, it was pointed out that the word dyslexia itself is a word of privilege because of parents of means being able to push for diagnoses, uh, you know, have neuro, uh, neuropsychologists get involved, et cetera. Um, you know, and even, even within my own family, you know, my son is not I am not dyslexic and my husband is not dyslexic. And like you, you know, it was very easy for both of us to learn how to read. We have learned since his death that my father-in-law was profoundly dyslexic. He's a computer engineer at NASA. That's what he spent his entire career doing. Brilliant, brilliant man who just memorized everything. Yeah. Um, my own mother at almost 80 years old looked at me two years or right before COVID began. And she said, didn't you ever wonder why I hated to read? And I was like, <laughs> I, I, I can't have this conversation right now. Mom. I was like, you just blew my brain. <laughs> I just can't. Um, but, you know, the, thinking of like nieces and nephews, et cetera, and what they've gone through, you know, I have a couple of them who were quote unquote identified, but never provided anything. You know, the schools just, one of them didn't get anything, didn't have a 504 plan, didn't have an IEP, had zero accommodations, had zero modifications, had absolutely nothing, barely got through the school system. The other one did have a 504 plan, but never received remediation. That 504 plan was purely for accommodations. And, you know, both of these are adults at this point, but, you know, the trauma that they experienced in the school, because what they needed was never provided is real. Um, but I really want to ask you this question. I had this conversation with a non-dyslexia mom. I don't know how she came across all of this information herself because her children didn't struggle. But she asked me several years ago, she said, I feel like I've been beating my head against the wall trying to get people to understand that reading instruction isn't working. Why does nobody believe me? why does nobody believe you? And I said, because we sound like conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in your take on, because you're deep down in this black hole at this point. What, politics aside, why is this such a difficult conversation to have? Yeah, well, it's complicated. I think there's a lot of answers, which is why it's such a difficult conversation to have. I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking about a few things. One is I think there are um, multiple sort of 
problems in the system that what you were just saying kind of touches on, right? I think there are, and I think many people agree on this, and there's there's a lot of evidence for this. We have a special education problem, right? So we we do, there are many people who fight, fight, fight for that label, dyslexia, so that they can access the services their kids need. And in some cases they do. And like in some schools, that is the way to open up uh, some good direct instruction, some good one-on-one -on -one or small group help that they're not getting. In some schools, it isn't. Like you, you fight, fight, fight for that label and you don't end up getting the help that you need. So we have a special education problem. Definitely. For sure. And that was sort of where I started. You know, not in every school. Big variations here, right? So you, I, I do find, writ large, going to make a really broad statement here. But I think within the special ed world and the people who are trained as special educators, there tends to have been more awareness writ large of all of this research. Like if you want to find the people who understand the research about this, who understand why direct instruction is important, why some kids really need it and need a lot of it, it's the special educators in the system who are more likely to know about that. And yet I've talked to people who are special educators and actually haven't learned this stuff, right? So it, that's kind of amazing too. Right. So there's a special ed problem. And then the aha that I had helped by moms like you is connecting this to a core instruction problem is to recognize that I think one of the reasons why it's such a problem for parents who are raising their hand and saying, I think something's wrong over here is that again, writ large, there just isn't, this research hasn't made its way into schools. So just a lot of teachers, a lot of curriculum directors, even special ed directors, principals, superintendents, school board members, they just haven't known about this research. So when you go in and say there's something going on, in many cases, the schools actually just don't know. They, they just, they don't know how to understand what that problem is. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to fix it. Um, and because we actually have this law, right, we have this special ed law, which means that if, if your child is really having a problem and has identified with a disability, the schools have a, like, have to help your child learn how to read. And so there's an incentive, and I'm not saying they're necessarily doing it willingly for them to sort of not see that or not recognize it, because if they do, they are compelled under federal law to fix it. And I, I really do think in many cases, they just don't know how to, which is why they don't want to label it because it's like, well, we don't want to label that kid as dyslexic because we actually don't know how to help help that child. So I just think we have many layers of a problem. But I, I also, something that I think is really important to point out. So my attention over the last few years, years has drifted more towards the core instruction questions, right? Sort of started with dyslexia special ed, moved into trying to expose what the problems are in core instruction. And a really important part of the solution to this problem overall is to get core instruction better, to do it better, to do it right. Because if kids are taught how to read well, right from the very beginning, we're gonna prevent a lot of problems. That said, I don't want anyone to forget about the fact that special education exists for a, research, for a reason. There are kids who are never gonna get enough from their first grade teacher who's teaching 26 little kids. That is a big ask we have of one teacher to teach a large group of first graders. We are always gonna need small group work, one-on-one -on -one work. I think small group work is always gonna have to be part of core instruction to tell you the truth, because even among just the general variety, forget someone who has a disability, right? Their kids are at really different places with reading, you know? So we cannot, like fixing core instruction isn't gonna fix the problem. We're always gonna need more than that for some kids. And your child, for example, even if core instruction was, I don't know what it was at your child's school, but even if it was awesome, your child was probably going to need something else and always will. So when people like reading and writing project. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> but, you know, and I think one of the things that I'm trying, that I tried, I think one of the reasons I did sold a story is sold a story is really about an idea. It's about one, it's, you know, six episodes and four and a half hours. And it's just about this one simple idea that has sort of taken over in education. And I wanted to reveal and expose that because I think the fact that this idea exists means a lot of other things have been sort of misunderstood. Like a lot of stuff has been kind of laid down upon this one idea. And this one idea is Kids don't have to be taught how to sound out the words. They can. Yes, we can add a little bit of phonics, but they have all these other ways to know what the words are. 
And what we know is kids can learn a certain amount of words in those other ways, but really the way that you really know the words that's going to allow you to be a fast, efficient, effective reader is by initially sounding those words out and connecting the spelling with the pronunciation and the meaning. And we know that that's how skilled reading works because we actually know that some of the stuff in that system of connecting the pronunciation with the spelling and meaning and holding that in your brain is what turns out to be so hard for kids with dyslexia. And many kids with dyslexia who do learn to read will forever be slow readers because their brains just don't do this quite as well as some of our other, other people's brains. But it doesn't mean they have like completely different brains. It means they just need a lot more and it's it's more work. It's never going to be quite as easy. Anyway, I can't remember where we started with <laughs> that question. No, that was great. Um, but I'm glad that you brought up sold a story and that you were focusing on one specific idea, because I think that, you know, we would be remiss at this point to not talk about some of the controversy that came that followed immediately on the heels of sold a story, right. <laughs> of, you know, you were talking about sold a story, but you didn't talk about the entire story. And as a parent of a dyslexic child, I didn't take your reporting as anything sh short of a more complete story, if that if that sentence makes any sense. But I know that, uh, like Dr. Rosinski wanted to, you know, wants you to talk more about fluency. There was some pushback that, you know, some people wanted you to talk more about writing, fluency, comprehension, written expression. You know, all of that is extremely critical and. I do think we need to be having conversations on absolutely everything, but I didn't take your series as something that was saying all of the other stuff isn't important, or I'm not going to focus on that. Because if you don't, from my perspective, if you don't lay that foundation, the rest of it doesn't matter. Because I know that after two years of teacher's college reading and writing project instruction in the classroom every day in one of the top schools in Houston, my child couldn't read at all. You know, he couldn't take, he sang the song. He knew that there was a pretty poster up above uh, the smart board in his classroom, but he had no correlation between the song that he sung the poster that was up there, these shapes that were on a piece of paper and that these shapes had sounds and these sounds put together could create words and that those words had meaning. There was absolutely no correlation between any of that after two years of classroom instruction. It's, yeah, and it's fascinating. You know, one of the things that's been so fat, like interesting to me is in this years of reporting on this, I've met so many adult struggling readers like that woman that I told you about at the very beginning. And when you're someone who this comes easily to do to, it kind of blows your mind that people don't make that connection. But that's the thing. Some people don't. I've met older readers who learn to read when they're older. And I'm like, what was it? How did you learn to read? And they've said to me this sort of simple thing. I, it, they just explained to me how the letters represent the sounds and the words. And mm -hmm. I just didn't know. I didn't get that. And I didn't know how. Not it, it, I sort of thought, like, you didn't know how it worked, right? There, and some people are like, no, I just didn't know that was a thing. I just didn't know. It's not that I didn't know the details. I just didn't know that this, that basic idea. And I'm like, really? And, but, and so it's so fascinating. And then, and then, and then it's kind of, it's complicated in English and there's a lot to figure out about how it works. But, um, you know, I think, so Sold a Story is really about one idea. So over this many years of reporting, I've been trying to understand, like, why? Why or how is it that all of this stuff is known about reading and how it works? And the complexity of reading, it's actually a very complex thing. And researchers all over the world have, like, figured out all kinds of really fascinating stuff. And so why wasn't more about that known about that in school? And I've just been trying to figure out why, and I've just been sort of trying to like pick away at that. And sold a story was sort of one part of why. Again, it's not even the whole why. <laughs> it's one little part of why. And why is that there was this other idea that I think people have bought into, which is that you can teach kids all different kinds of ways to read the written words. And I guess the other thing that I've focused, I mean, as journalists point out problems, that's one of the things that we do, right? That's 
part of being a journalist is you're looking, what are the problems in the world, exposing them, help people, help people understand them. And so it's very clear that there's just sort of a problem at this very fundamental level of how do people learn written words? What do they need to be taught? Why is that harder for some people than others? What is up with all of that? And the point is you cannot be a good reader unless you can read the words really well. It's not the only thing. And I actually think that I have in the documentaries I did before sold a story. I think there's actually more in those documentaries about the other pieces. And, and I, I, I'm not going to say that I even went into all of those other pieces, but I do touch on the other pieces and I describe some of the basic concepts about reading and the relationship between reading the words and language comprehension and background knowledge. And that's all in there. Um, and then in sold a story, it was uh, a different project, really. It was like, investigating the why and the how, and it was really a historical piece. We had a timeline for this project that started in the 1600s <laughs> and has like, I don't know, I think it has like 2000 entries in it. So mm -hmm. we were just trying to figure out like, how did we get here? And um, as I say, I think anyone else who's a writer, a journalist or whatever, really understands the fundity of what I'm about to say, although it might for some people be like, oh, well, that's the problem with journalism. But journalism is as good what you being a writer, not journalism, it your final product is as good as what you leave out. Mm -hmm. Focus is so essential. And I interview so many people and learn so many things that never make it in. Um, and I'm trying to all of that is trying to inform the relatively simple sentences that I have to write in audio to tell people things that they can understand. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to understand, you know, explain some very basic concepts. And I will I agree. I, mean, I will accept the criticism that I haven't covered everything about reading and how it works. But I feel like I've tried to do it in a way that was going to reveal the problem to people in a new, a different in a different way to mm -hmm. help people see it, I think, a little bit differently than the way we've gotten stuck seeing it. And ironically, I feel like the place we got stuck is this war, that it was like sort of phonics or no phonics. And I actually, my reporting makes pretty clear that that's not the issue here. It's not about whether you, I mean, it is, but it's not just about whether you add phonics instruction. It's about whether you take away this other idea, which fundamentally says you actually don't need to teach kids really the way to read the words that's going to help them get into their brain because you can teach them all these other strategies and like look at the picture and look at the first letter and look at the last letter and focus on meaning first and meaning drives the whole process and yes indeed everybody agrees that meaning is the goal we all agree that the point of reading and the point of teaching a child to read is so that child can understand what he or she reads the question is and always has been how does a child get there? How does that work? And we didn't, as a human beings, know the answer to that question definitively until relatively recently. And now we really, not like we know everything about reading and how it works, but we know a whole lot. And we really know a whole lot more than we did 30, 40, 50 years ago. We argued about this stuff for centuries because we didn't know it was truly a mystery of the human mind. We have revealed so many of those mysteries. Let's all agree that there's this shared knowledge base that we can all learn about. And let's start it. I'm not saying there aren't plenty of really good debates to be had about reading and how to teach it. I don't think all of those questions have been settled. I don't think there's a perfect curriculum or a perfect scope and sequence or anything. And there probably never will be. But there's like a knowledge base that we all need to like move ourselves on top of. Like, let's all go be on this island of knowledge. And let's go from here and have the productive debates that are necessary to have, but let's all start here instead of in this old worn out, you've got your science and I've got my science. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you said what, what you just said, because I was listening to something the other day and um, an educator made a statement and all of a sudden the thought popped into my head of, okay, you have a product like teacher's college reading and writing project, or, you know, something similar to that, where to me being an outsider, but having read as much as I read, it seems to be a very spoon fed curriculum 
there's not a lot of creativity or thought process that needs to go into implementing that type of curriculum because it's just such a spoon fed type thing. And some of the remediation programs that exist because of their scope and sequence, it's a very detailed thing that you have to go through. So not that spoon fed may necessarily be a negative term, but it's a very clear cut cookie cutter. This is how you're going to do it A to Z type of thing. And I think from my perspective that that's part of the problem within the debate when, you know, there's no perfect curriculum, there's no perfect scope and sequence. There never can be because we need to get away from the idea that education, that education is a system where all of our children are, are, are robots, that they're all exactly equal to each other. And if we can embrace the idea that all children are different and that that variability exists, otherwise, you know, NAEP wouldn't be around 70% at this point, which shows that education is really only teaching 30% of the children at this point that enter its halls. We need to get away from the idea of education being a spoon-fed thing. And from my perspective, if you empower the teachers with the knowledge that they need to possess, then it's going to be easier to individualize per child because you could have this in first grade, we're going to do this. You know, The goal is by the end of first grade to learn this. You don't have to have all 30 children in the classroom on exactly the same step if you can have more of empowerment through knowledge within the teachers themselves in order to help more children advance through the system instead of saying here's the curriculum it's a to z you may not deviate here's the cookie or here, here are the cookie cutters go forth and conquer yeah it's ironic i think because in some ways i think for some people this whole conversation about the science of reading, somehow they think that the answer is being held up as like, everyone has to have a scripted curriculum and has to be cookie cutter and everyone has to do it the same way. And I think much of the pushback against sort of direct instruction in teaching has been, well, you are dismissing the teachers and teacher knowledge and teacher autonomy. And it's interesting because you're making an you're making sort of an argument that I think would mess with a lot of people's minds and be like, well, wait a minute. I thought like what you're saying sounds like the other side. I hate to put it like this. Um, and so I think so I, I, I actually I agree with you. I think teacher knowledge is the most critical thing here. It's the most important part. Like there's a lot of pieces to getting this right. And I, I and I think other people believe other things, maybe potentially. I mean, I think there are people out so here's the thing, I think teachers also need curriculum and materials. And in a lot of cases, we're expecting teachers to really come up with a lot of it on their own. And they're cobbling it together and using like pieces of things. And I think some teachers are doing that brilliantly well, especially if they really know something, uh, you know, about how to teach reading. But that also makes it really hard. Like a lot of teachers then like they're being asked to be curriculum developers. Like that's actually a different job than being a teacher. Right. So I actually think teachers deserve good curriculum. And I have talked to teachers who have gotten good curriculum that was more sort of scripted and have felt really empowered by that, actually, that that was like that made it really clear, like what they were supposed to teach. But the teacher knowledge to understand something about like, well, then when is it, you know, when is this not working and who is it not working for and who needs more help and who missed this and who needs me to go back and I do think teachers, that is, that's why we need teachers. And teacher knowledge is absolutely critical. And one of the reasons I've stuck on this issue for so many years is I just think a lot of teachers, not through a fault of their own, have had some misconceptions in their own mind about mm -hmm. reading and how it works. And part of that's come from the professional development that they've gotten from some people who've styled themselves as experts on this um, and the curriculum that they get. And I, I hear from teachers all the time. And when they hear this work or read a lot of things that are being written by other people about this these days, their reaction is like, holy smokes, I didn't know that. I had very little knowledge about this, or I actually really had some wrong ideas in my own head 
about reading and, and how it works. It didn't understand how reading works in the brain. And I understanding it is really making me think differently. And I think teacher knowledge also helps teachers be more critical consumers. So I think one of the things that's happened is because there hasn't been enough knowledge in the system about reading and how it really works and what's up with kids who have reading difficulties. People in education writ large haven't been able to see the stuff that isn't so good, or even to see within the voluminous curriculum they have, what's what's like makes sense and what doesn't. And to be like, mm, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to use that part. Why is that in here? No, I'm not going to do that. So I just think that's absolutely critical. But you know what I, I certainly hear from teachers around the country is that they are learning about this stuff and in many cases spending their own time and even their own money, getting training, buying books, going to webinars, doing stuff over the summer, learning about this stuff, and then feeling kind of frustration like, and what about, I need better assessments. I need better curriculum. I need better materials. And I need my school system to help me with that. So I think I think we kind of have to do both. I, I agree. Um, I just, for some reason, I wish I could remember what grade this happened in. Um, I remember that I had an, an, almost an entire year of ELA that focused on rhetorical writing. Is this when you were a child? Yes. Ah. Um, you know, I'm not going to hide how old I am. I'm 49. So, you know, I, I am educated prior to the takeover, at least in my state of whole language balanced literacy. Um, my grandmother was a teacher. Uh, my father and I have discussed it many times. Um, my father is 81 years old and, um, he and I have discussed it many times about where would my grandmother be in this debate? Were she alive? She passed away my last year of college. Um, and he and I both very much agree that she would be on the side of science of reading and she would be looking at everybody going, I don't understand why this is a question. You know, if, if people really do roll over in the graves and God knows my, my grandmother is doing backflips in the grave, if she could know what was going on in education right now, but I was educated prior to that entire switch. So I don't remember, I'm sure it was in high school, but I don't remember what grade I remember having to go through this whole thing about rhetorical writing. And for some reason over the last week, this has just been like going through my head, but I'm also a negotiator for a living. That's, that's how I, you know, pay the bills. And so I have significant training in when I'm having a conversation with you, what are you not saying? Or what are you trying to put my attention on instead of the thing that we really need to be talking about? And I feel like so much of what is said, you know, you're going to make a statement and somebody's going to go, but this, but this, but this, but this, but this, how much of that. And don't get me wrong. That person may adamantly believe the thing that they're making that, but statement about, but I'm sitting here going, how much of that is a red herring, <laughs> you know, like the debate between the value between a decodable book and a level literacy reader. And everybody's like, you know, some people are like, throw all, throw all the level, level books away. And some people are going, but those books have value. Yes, every book has value, but the level books don't have value until the child can crack the code. So can we stop with the red herring argument between the debate between what a decodable is versus a leveled book? Can that just, can that just end? That's one of those things that just drive me nuts. And so as people throw these things out there, and say, but this, but this, but this, but this, but this, I'm sitting here going, you're not focusing on the, the, the key thing, you know, um, I said on eyes Twitter, on the prize here, right? Like, let's keep our eyes on the prize. <laughs> uh, absolutely. You know, I said on Twitter yesterday, um, a, a childhood friend of mine, you know, somebody that I grew up with, I even went to college with this person is a teaching professor for, for a university here in the state of Texas. And she, <laughs> she's diehard, uh, Mari Clay fan. I mean, there, there, there are no ifs, ands, or buts that, that is where all of the truth lies and the rest of us are crazy. And, um, 
you know, I tried to reach out to her and have a conversation with her. I'm like, can we, can, I mean, you and I have history. Can we just talk about this? She wouldn't even talk to me. And I'm sitting here going, if we can't, and she's my age. So she was taught, we went to the same elementary school. I know how she was taught to read. <laughs> so I'm sitting here going, how, why can we not have these conversations? And all of just, to me, there's so much noise in this space. Can I say and, something about Marie Clay that I think is really important? Please. Um, I think it's important, and I, you know, I, I, I think it's really important to recognize that Marie Clay got some things right, right? So, um, I pointed out again, sold the stories about this one idea, right? I'm focusing an idea where it came from, why people believed in that idea, how it's made its way into education, what's wrong with it, how it's become problematic, how this is one of the things I think that's part of the problem now and how reading is, is being taught. Marie Clay understood some really important things. She understood how important it is to prevent problems from happening, right? And in her time, a lot of kids were not getting identified in first grade because there really was a strong belief like it'll all be okay. And Marie Clay was saying, just like so many dyslexia moms are, no, it's not going to be okay. We can't let these kids continue to struggle. This is the beginning of a really bad cycle. So, it, and kids can learn in first grade. A lot of people were saying, no, don't worry. Some kids just can't learn in first grade. And we actually really know that most kids really who are being taught really can start to learn to read in first grade. Mari Clay was sticking up for that. She was sticking up for preventing the problems. She believed in one-on-one instruction. And I think that's crucial. I think there are always going to be kids who need one-on-one instruction. She believed in uh, really well-trained teachers. You go through a year of training in reading recovery um, training. So reading recovery got a lot of things right. There's this problematic idea that she believed in about reading which turns out not to be right. It doesn't line up with what we know about how the brain learns to read. So that's a problem. So I know Marie Clay fans out there feel like all I've done is attack and not see these other things. So I'm saying right now, just going against what you just said, all the but, but, but yes, Mar and, I, and Marie Clay cared about kids. She was trying to do the right things. As I do believe the people who came after her, the people that I focus on and sold a story, I do not say in there that they are trying to hurt children. I do not think anyone is trying to hurt children. The point is, Mari Clay wasn't right about how reading works. A lot of, in, in, in this really fundamental thing about just like how people learn to read the words, okay? And a lot of other people weren't right about that either. And we have our whole education system. A lot of things in our education system turn out to be resting on that assumption. And we've got to get rid of that idea, get that out of there, keep the stuff that's good. Lots of things about whole language were good. Lots of books. Definitely don't throw away all your leveled readers. No, bring books in. Yes, kids should be read to. Kids should talk a lot. Language comprehension is really important. The meaning is important helping kids enjoy this is really important. All that stuff really matters. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. That, so I, I am really, I have heard from other people who have lost friendships and long professional relationships over this stuff. And I think that's really sad and too bad. And I hope that doesn't last forever. Like, I hope you and your friend can come together again, and maybe you need to go with her with all the things that you think Marie Clay got right. And let's start there. And I also, I, I just think everyone wants the same thing. Mm -hmm. We want kids to be good readers. We want kids to be okay. We want kids to do well. So let's just all start there and realize we agree on that. Okay. So let's go from there. All right. Now what, how do we do that? Here's what we know now. No. And I, and I think that that's important. And, you know, I, one of the, one of the things that I find that's positive because there's people out there that, you know, they, they just, they just want to be positive. You know, they, they just want, they just want everybody just to, just to people just don't want conflict. Come on, no conflict. Right. And I mean, come on, when things are, look at, I don't say we have to fight just for the sake of fighting, but some things are worth fighting about. Conflict but, is inevitable. <laughs> conflict is inevitable. You know, when, uh, like, um, Faith Burkowski and Judy Boxner had me on their podcast, uh, the literacy view, real teachers letting loose. And, you know, I was like, we, can, I can, I can have a conversation with you and I can say, Hey, Emily, I don't agree with you. And I'm upset about what you just said without being disrespectful to you, you know, and you can do the same back to me. 
And I feel like that is an art that's been lost and in the culture that we have and, you know, social media definitely doesn't help. It's easier to say, wait a minute, you, you just said what? And start throwing stones at you instead. You know, um, I wrote a response to the letter of 58, which was the letter that came out immediately after sold a story. And was I nice in it? I absolutely wasn't nice in it. But the point that I was trying to make was the letter of 58 to me felt very dismissive and it was off-putting because I felt like parents were yet again, and you as our voice was being told, no, you don't understand. You're not an educator. You just don't get it. And I'm sitting here going, you know what? After all of these years, I'm not putting up with it anymore. <laughs> well, so. and there's, there's a lot of emotion here for good reason, right? Absolutely. You've been through a lot with your child. A lot of people have been through a lot with their child. There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake. So it makes sense. And, and, and emotions, you know, emotions run high with this one. Um, I do really think though, that knowledge is really the key and, you know, it, it, like people's eyes really are being opened. And I, I posted this on Twitter the other day um, and it was about an analysis that's been done about Twitter um, and the, the focus on reading and I think a lot of people charge me with sort of reigniting the rating wars. Like, why are you doing that? You know, you're coming in here and you're, I mean, they, they charge me with being sort of angry and hateful. And I, I sometimes, and I, I really feel like I've tried very hard not to be, to have a very, I know I show things, say things, reveal things in my reporting that are hard to take and controversial to some people. So I think it can kind of come off as critical, obviously. Um, but I don't think I've tried to do it in a mean tone. In fact, I've tried really hard to sort of keep it above the picture. But I would say that, um, you know, people have sort of said, well, why would it, you know, why is this woman reigniting the reading wars? And number one, I think it's like, I, I think the war has always been there. I think what I have come along and pointed to, which people like you know, is that this is a war that was going on. It was just like, hello, this battle. You know what, everyone, we thought the war was settled and whoops, uh, it isn't. So that's number one. But there was this analysis that was done by these pro uh, professor and, and some of her colleagues at the University of Minnesota about how the conversation around reading instruction and the science of reading has changed over the last few years. And even though people, it feels like it's more intense and it's more emotional, what their analysis shows is it's become less emotional. There's been an increase in volume. People are talking about this more, but they chose when the piece I did in 2018 called Hard Words, which was a lot of people's sort of first encounter with my reporting on this, and in some cases with this whole topic, and that there was that there's been an increase in talking about this on Twitter since then. But the, the conversation has actually gotten less emotional. It's actually like starting to converge around some consensus. And I think that's really awesome. Like, listen, look at our world. And we think that it's all becoming more hateful. And maybe if we did an analysis on all kinds of topics, we'd realize that we actually agree more than we think. Because we all sort of see our own little world, right? So we sort of see our point of view. And then we see the point of view. I think we get a skewed view of what the debate is potentially. And I can it's really interesting <laughs> to take all the data all together and be like, oh no, this is moderating. The conversation yeah. is moderating. And I think that's great. And why I think it's moderating because of knowledge. I think knowledge moderates things. Science does. There are facts. There are things that are just real and we should all know and agree on and go from there. And if we can start there, I think our battles won't be as extreme. I think, I think we can agree to disagree on some things, um, but there's a lot to agree on. That's, that's interesting. And I'm going to have to definitely go read that study for sure. I know in the years that I've been doing this, there are significantly more voices now than there were when I started doing this. You know, when I started doing this, the, the number of voices was very, very small. The number of people that are out there now talking about it, uh, especially on Twitter, that number has increased 
they're exponentially, dramatically. I mean, there's almost just not a good enough word to be able to describe it, especially since COVID began. Um, I'm seeing, I feel like a lot of emotion kind of coming out, more emotion coming out of the BL camp, the balanced literacy camp than I've seen before. But from my perspective, that's because as you just said, we're gaining ground in the overall understanding. And more and more teachers are being trained every year in what the science of literacy actually is now versus where they were five years ago. That, and I can see that, that's a dramatic change. I think where some of the pain point comes in is, you know, a, a parent like me, we, we want a wholesale change tomorrow. Because that's the only way to save our children is a wholesale change tomorrow. But in at least my mind as a parent advocate, I can't, I can't save my son from the system. The only way that I can save my son from the system is to provide him privately what he's not going to get within the public education system, which again is something of extreme privilege, but what I'm aiming to do is save his children mm-hmm. from what he's experiencing now. And if we can turn the tide for that generation, then I think we've all done our work because nothing's going to happen overnight. No, and you know what? Um, it probably shouldn't because if we act too fast, you know, like we can act fast or we can we can do it right. And, and, and there is urgency because there's a whole bunch of little six-year-olds right now Absolutely. who aren't being taught how to read. And some of those kids aren't going to learn how to read very well. And that is a huge problem. And a bunch of those kids aren't going to have a mom like you with the resources to fix it. So absolutely, we should have feel a sense of urgency. But I do think education suffers from urgency because we do try to do things too fast and too quick and too bluntly. And um, don't we, we don't stick with things for long enough. I really hope we stick with this whole fixing reading instruction thing for a long time. Like, let's just, let's try to really make it better. And if it has to be incremental, it has to be incremental. Again, that shouldn't give anyone, you know, shouldn't give anyone a reprieve from like, if you're running a system or you are a first grade teacher and you know that you should be doing something differently, like start to figure out what that differently is tomorrow, but you're not going to know all this and fix it all overnight. And, um, I really hope we stick with this. I think about this a lot as a reporter. I just, I hope we stick with this for a long time because it's gonna get fixed if we stick with it for a long time, but let's not Let's not give up. And, you know, for all the things we know about reading and how it works and how complex it is, we you might not see a lot of our success really quickly and in like increased test scores. Those NAEP scores represent something that is very complex, you know, and that we know is all the pieces of reading that I haven't all focused on. All we 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 actually know that there are a lot of kids who are going to be sort of advantaged in taking those NAEP tests forever. Um, there's a lot of things, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is there are a lot of things to fix out here in addition to the problems that I've identified about Absolutely. how we teach writing, about Absolutely. all of the curriculum. And it gets right to things that are, you know, the most difficult for us as a nation. One of the, you know, it's very hard to decide for us to decide on what we want kids to know. Mm-hmm. There's so much knowledge out there and it's, you know, in some ways, what we really do need is sort of some decisions about curriculum, some decisions about the knowledge we're trying to make sure children have when they graduate from high school. And our tests would, it, something like the NAEP test, NAEP test, if that were actually aligned with a curriculum of some kind, would be a much better test. It would be telling us much more what we needed to know about what kids were learning and what they weren't. But I don't think we'll ever agree <laughs> on a curriculum. And it's sort of baked into our system in a way that we're not supposed to be telling schools exactly what to teach and how. And I don't think we're going to move away from that. So we have to sort of work within a kind of imperfect system. And it's an imperfect system because it was meant to be that way. And maybe that is the way it should be. I don't know. Um, But 
all of this stuff about making decisions about like, what do you really want kids to know? Are we teaching them those things? Do we have assessments that actually accept, assess whether they've learned those things? These are things that individual schools and districts could make their own decisions about and would, would get us better results and better ways of measuring whether or not we're successful. Absolutely. You know, and I was, I was talking to a mom in a district here in the state uh, the other day where they're fighting to get their school district to abandon balanced literacy-based curriculums and adopt science literacy-based curriculums. And what I said to her was I went, you, you can't celebrate at the point of adoption because I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Motes uh, a couple of years ago. And I was like, okay, as a parent, if I go into this, you know, fighting for change and I win change from a curriculum perspective, being somebody who's always worked in negotiation and contracts in the corporate world, I know that there's an expectation on return on investment. And as any delay in return on investment is always going to have voices of dissension that are saying, that are going to be out there saying, see, it doesn't work. The thing that you tried to implement doesn't work because my return on investment isn't what I expected it to be. And anybody that's got a, you know, a business degree obviously knows that return on investment is something that has to be calculated out because it's never an overnight thing. It has to be, you know, at what point do you expect to see that reverse, that investment returned to you? So I asked Dr. Moat specifically, I was like, when can districts expect to see that return on investment? And she said, that's a great question because it's not going to be overnight. And from a return on investment perspective, they're going to make this substantial investment. That's a three to five year return on investment. You're not going to see your numbers begin to shift with your children on their scores for about three years. Maybe even longer, I would say, because yeah. here, if you think about it like this, say a school, you know, let's just say there's such a thing, like, say school really wasn't doing anything aligned with this sort of so-called science of reading and then they figure out how to do it. And they're, they got to train all the like kindergarten teachers and they got to like, say they got to, you got to give them an initial training. I mean, this is what happened in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I started doing a lot of this reporting many years ago. It was like a year worth of training for the kindergarten teachers. Then they start to implement something. This is even before they actually well, I guess they had to, I don't know if they've gotten a new curriculum, but then you think like, okay, then, then let's just say, so say, say it takes you, say you go through like a year of learning it and then a year of first implementing it with a lot of, you know, like stops and starts and you did something well, let's just say, you know how to do it well by the third year. Now you've got kids in kindergarten and what do we use to measure those when the kids are in third grade? So then they're in first grade, second grade, third grade, that's six years, that's and six years. That's exactly where I was headed was her point was that it, it takes a few years for the teacher to really learn all of it. It's, they can't learn it in one year. They need to learn it over three to five, but you'll see a little bit of return on your investment in year three, but you really won't start to see return on your investment until like year five. And so I told this person that I was speaking with, I said, okay, August 15th, 2023, your district has every teacher trained in, in letters, as an example, and all of the curriculums in place, let's go. That kindergartner is going to be the first group of kids that, I said that kindergartner, now it's bugging me. Those kindergartners mm -hmm. are gonna be the first group of children that are going to truly get the right instruction because your second, your first, second, and third graders already had some balanced literacy. So some of that's going to have to be redone. Okay. That kindergartner isn't going to take a state assessment until third grade and isn't going to be subject to Nate until fourth grade, which is essentially five school years later. But depending upon where Nate falls, you're talking about six to seven years before those numbers actually shift. In a and don't way. forget, NAEP isn't necessarily gonna tell you either. That's a sample of kids right. within a state. Uh, right. And then don't forget that in this uh, you know, school system we're talking about, there might be 30% turnover of the teachers during that time as well. Absolutely. But I was just trying to get her to understand. I was like, you're, you're, you're fighting at the district level. And yes, you're absolutely right. It would have to be implemented across the state to be able to see it from NAEP. But the point that I was trying to get her to understand was I was like, 
don't celebrate because they voted out the curriculum today. Let's celebrate in five to seven years when that return on investment is very, very obvious and nobody's tearing it down anymore because five years is a long time to give people that don't believe in that to say, see, I told you it doesn't work. This is why it's really important that I think this is starting to reach more and more people because the other thing that I think is going to have to happen is we're going to have to build this consensus around what we're talking about here, how kids learn to read and how to fix this problem so that what happens so frequently in districts doesn't happen, which is a principal takes this on and invests in all this stuff. And then five years later, that principal leaves and a different principal comes in and you can do this at the superintendent level, which actually might even be more relevant and decides there's a different direction. We're going to use a different way of doing it. We're going to bring in a different PD. We're going to... so. What we really need to do is moderate the system so there's not all of these, so that we're not going back writ large to sort of the balanced literacy approach. Again, we haven't defined that. Lots of people have many things that they mean by that. And balanced literacy sounds really good. And I think ultimately we are seeking balance in our literacy instruction. But in that long timeline that I told you about earlier, going back through time, what you can really see is that balanced literacy sort of morphed out of this whole language approach. They're not exactly the same thing. Balance literacy often is like adding some phonics in, but it still tends to be based on a theory about reading and how it works, which mm -hmm. is flawed, which does not, has not lined up with the science. So as the entire system, and I mean that a profound thing that I think is happening right now is that this whole science of reading conversation is not happening just within schools and among people who sort of speak education language. It's happening among and because of parents like you and the mom that you mentioned before. And I think this is so important. The mom whose kids did not struggle how to read with how to read, but she also cares and wants to fix this problem. That's one of the things that I have felt really good about in terms of soul's story is that I am hearing now frequently from the parents of kids who don't struggle to read. I still hear more often from the parents of kids who struggle to read because there are a lot of those kids out there. But I hear from a lot of other parents and they're like, you know, my kid's fine. And I never thought about this before. And gosh, darn it. I want to do something about this because I want to fix this in my kid's school, even though it's not my kid. Yeah. And like, great. So I do. I think there's just like a broader awareness of all of this. And if we can just keep growing that awareness, we can moderate the way that the system gets all pendulumy on us, you know, and goes from one extreme sort of to another and like, let's just moderate around shared understandings of what we're going for here and how to get there. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with that, you know, instead of, you know, I think Natalie Wexler did a really good job in the knowledge gap of giving us a history over the 20th century of how the thoughts of what education should be morphed across the disparate decades, right? Yep. I feel like she gave us a really great history there. I would like to see less thought shifts and more consensus, which I think is what you're saying on ideas about how, you know, not to steal a historical term, but maybe an enlightenment and education that takes it away from some fad idea that comes up at, at the time and get to more of, if we're going to have a literate populace, which in order, I can't remember who said this quote, somebody posted it on uh, one of the social media platforms the other day, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. In order to truly have a democracy, you must have a literate populace in order to support that democracy. We're shifting away from having a truly literate populace, which puts a lot of things at risk. We need we need to come together as a consensus, you know. And as many of my friends have said, we're truly in a literacy crisis. And I love saying that on social media and having somebody, you know, go, "What literacy crisis? We're not having a literacy crisis." <laughs> I'm like, yeah, not going there. But I would I would love to see an enlightenment within education that is more of minds coming together to discuss the science and the ideas to get to what our children really need. You know, one of the things that I've always found just intellectually 
interesting and satisfying about being an education reporter is the way that the politics are unexpected. You know, the politics in education are sometimes kind of strange and they're not what you thought they were going to be. And I just find, I'm just noticing a lot of people who actually probably disagree on a lot of things <laughs> agreeing on this reading thing. And mm -hmm. there, and I, I think that's really great. Like, I think liberals and Republicans and Democrats and conservatives can agree on a lot of this stuff. And um, I think it's, it's messing with the minds, you know, some, some people are finding themselves kind of disagreeing with the talking points of their tribe uh, in some cases on these issues. And I think that's kind of refreshing. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I, I think that there's, there's a lot to be written about the politics of all of this. And I think it's a good news story. I think a lot of our politics are not very good news story and like controversial, controversial issues drive us further apart. But this is a controversial issue that I don't think really is controversial. And I think it's bringing us closer together. And I really do. I mean, I look at my own Twitter feed and some of the people who follow me and who I reply to, and I think, oh, probably on a lot of things we don't agree on much, but isn't this, isn't this interesting? And it's probably the same on a lot of people's feeds. Look at your followers. Yeah. I think it's great. I love it. We need more of that. This is like a good news. I think this is a good news story for our world. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, and I just, you know, I want to be respectful of your time too. And I know we've gone just a little bit over an hour now. Well, more than an hour, because you and I didn't go long for a few minutes. <laughs> but um, I really want to, I really want to thank you for taking the time to come on today and, and chat with me. Um, you know, I've, I've been a big fan of your work for a while and you and I have had some back and forth emails. And so I just, I'm grateful that you took the time today. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. It was a really interesting conversation. So I appreciate you providing the space to have it. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been absolutely been my pleasure. So thank you very, very Have much. a good Saturday, everybody. Thanks for being here. <laughs> yes, this will be available on our YouTube channel and our podcast here momentarily. So check us out there. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.